Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are eventually going to cover all 28 chapters of this amazing book in the New Testament that comes right after the four Gospels. And we have now come to part 7 in our study. This will ultimately be a 12-part series. The notes and all of the previous recordings are available for any of the sessions you might have missed. And we know sometimes schedules don't allow you to join us live, but we do gather together online and on the phone at 7.30 Wednesday evenings, and we can give you the information on how to do that. Uh, also, the notes and recordings are available several different ways. You can go to our website, new-life-ministries.org. You can also go to mixlr.com and listen live online. The broadcast name there is New Life Ministries. And again, all of the recordings are found there. You can also subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast, and you will automatically get any new notes and recordings as they are added. Okay, we've come to a very important section in the book of Acts, which we will be covering in this seventh part. And if you are following in the notes, which I strongly recommend you download the notes ahead of time and have them, because we look at a lot of scriptures, and it's a little bit tedious to be thumbing around through the Bible, although you can do that if you like. Uh, but hopefully a lot of the references that we'll be reading are already here spelled out in the notes. We are on page 105 in the notes, and again, this is part 7. We have been building up to this, but now the gospel will actually be going to the Gentiles. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, knew that this was a big deal. This was no small thing. And that's why he devotes a lot of time and a lot of space in the book of Acts to this segment of church history. And actually, Paul later, when he writes to the Galatians in chapter 3, he goes all the way back to Genesis 12, where God gave his sevenfold blessing to Abraham, and one part of that blessing was through him all of the nations, all of the peoples on the earth would be blessed. Well, in Galatians 3, Paul interprets that for us. What that really means is the gospel would go to the nations. In Hebrew, the word for nations is goyim. Goy is one nation, goyim is nations. Uh, the word is translated Gentiles normally, but all it means is all of the non-Israelite nations. That's what a Gentile is. So, in the Old Testament, you had Jews, the nation of Israel, and everybody else. Everybody else was a Gentile. And for centuries, God had centered his attention on Israel, on the people of Jewish descent, tracing their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's interesting, from the very beginning, God prophesied that a day was coming when his blessing, and we understand from Paul's interpretation, the gospel of grace, salvation, would eventually come to all nations. It was prophesied by Isaiah. A number of the other prophets uh, talk about, you know, light coming to the Gentiles, etc., etc. So, this was a big deal. And when we come now to Acts chapter 10, this was outlined for us in Acts 1.8. The gospel would go first to Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, 
and then to the ends of the earth. That can only mean taking it to all of the Gentile nations. And we ended chapter 9, although most of the chapter dealt with Saul, a.k.a. Paul, and his uh, amazing conversion experience, the chapter ended once again with attention focusing on Peter. It seems that that final segment of Acts 9 really belongs more here in chapter 10, and I think we've often mentioned the chapter divisions in the Bible are arbitrary. They're not inspired, and sometimes you can question how these divisions uh, were made, but most of Acts 9 dealt with Paul. The final verses, we turn our attention back to Peter, and Peter will remain the center of focus in Acts 10, 11, and 12. And then, attention will shift back to Paul again, starting in chapter 13. So, here we are, Acts chapter 10, we'll read the first eight verses to kick things off. Acts 10, verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. There were very few Jews in Caesarea, and certainly uh, his whole family is a Gentile family, although there are a couple of key words that you often pick out in the New Testament particularly. Back to verse 2, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. That often indicates that they had either converted to Judaism or they were at least very friendly, very sympathetic toward the Jewish people. And you may already be remembering an encounter that Jesus had with a Roman centurion, and it may very well be his first encounter with a Gentile in the Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew 8 and also in Luke 7. And interestingly there, that centurion also had been a friend of the Jews. And I don't want to go too far afield tonight, but we recently talked about this in one of our Sunday messages. The blessing that God gave to Abraham also has a stern warning. God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so we wonder if God didn't single out this man Cornelius just as the unnamed Roman centurion found in Matthew 8 or Luke chapter 7, if he didn't single them out because 
they had been friends of the Jewish people. I will bless them that bless you. Well, certainly God is about to bless Cornelius, as indicated by what we already read. An angel of God appears to him and tells him, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, a little more about that in a minute. Back to Cornelius the man. We're told he was devout. He was a God-fearing man, as was his whole family. And as a centurion, the name centurion comes from the root word from which we get century or 100. A centurion typically had command of about 100 soldiers. So this was a very responsible man, obviously a man of some standing, and yet we're told here he was devout and his whole family was God-fearing. Now, he was an honorable man, and even though he was not yet saved, he needed to hear the gospel. That's why Peter is going to be sent to his house. He needs to hear the good news to get saved. But he was an upright man, an honorable man, who was walking faithfully in the light that he had been able to see through his own conscience. And there's a fascinating portion of Scripture I want to read from the book of Romans where Paul explains that even Gentiles, though they've never been in a synagogue, maybe they've never even heard the law of Moses, they by nature already have written on their conscience the requirements of the law. Listen carefully to this, and I think it applies to the case at hand, that of Cornelius. Romans 2, verses 13 to 15. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So, Going all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1, God made man in his image and likeness. And even after the fall, he was able to know good and evil. He was given a conscience. And that conscience would be his moral guide. And even long before the Ten Commandments the law of Moses was given at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, man had a law written on his heart. We call it the conscience. Um, Paul actually refers to the conscience here, that they already had written on their hearts the requirements of the law. So long before Mount Sinai, Man would have known in his conscience, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse. Those things were spelled out in the Ten Commandments, but Paul is insisting here that Gentiles who never heard the law, he says, even Gentiles who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law. Kindness, being uh, kind to your neighbor, 
Those are all things that were written into the heart, into the conscience of man, long before the Ten Commandments were given. So, Cornelius was an honorable man. He was walking according to his conscience. He prayed to God regularly, we read. He was devout. He feared God. And he was generous. He gave to the poor. And God was taking notice of this man. His devotion to God, his prayers, his fear of God, his generous giving, the Lord took notice. And, as I mentioned, he's not saved yet. And don't get confused here, we're not saved by good works. We're not saved just by doing the things that Cornelius was doing. But it showed something very honorable about this man, and it obviously caught the attention of heaven. And so, of all people, it's no coincidence that God chose this man and his household to be the official recipients of the gospel as representatives of the Gentile world. And he would soon be given the full light of salvation through the preaching of the gospel at the mouth of the Apostle Peter. Now, we again saw in verse 4, Cornelius' prayers, his gifts, had come up before God and had received God's attention. Now, when the angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius, um, he asks, What is it, Lord? Your prayers and gifts have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, and immediately sent them on their way to Joppa to bring back Peter. You know, I like testimonies like this one. It's similar in some ways to what we just finished last time with Saul of Tarsus, and God giving Saul a vision, God giving Ananias a vision. It's like the Lord has all the bases covered. He's working all the levers. He's got everything timed out perfectly because he is sovereign. And here again, we're only seeing one part of the picture here. We'll see the rest of it in the next verses. But while God is noticing this man Cornelius, he sends an angel to him, and he knows exactly who he is. He calls him by name. He knows exactly where the Apostle Peter is. He knows what house he's in. Remember, when God appeared to Ananias in a vision, he knew exactly what house Saul was staying in. And let me tell you again tonight, God knows your address, he knows your name, he knows how many hairs are on your head, he knows your shoe size, he knows everything about you. And very specific instructions are given to Cornelius, he immediately acts upon them. He sends his servants and a soldier on to Joppa to look for this man Simon Peter. Now, let's read on. While all this is happening on Cornelius's end, God is also working on Peter's end. Acts 10, we're going to read from verse 9 to 23. About noon, the following day, as they, that's the contingent sent by Cornelius, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. 
and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Don't feel too bad if sometimes you get distracted when you're trying to pray. Maybe you fall asleep. Maybe you get hungry. It happened to the best of them. Peter is on the roof. Their roof, of course, would have been flat, not like our pitched roofs here. He was up on the flat roof. He had gone there for probably for peace and quiet and uh, solitude to pray. But he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. You talk about perfect timing. God's all over this one, too. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So, Cornelius has his vision, Peter has his vision, and God brings the whole thing together with perfect timing. The three men sent by Cornelius to this house where Peter is staying, they arrive just as Peter has finished having this vision. He's trying to figure out what it means, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him. Go down, meet these people that have come. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the vision that Peter has. He sees something like a sheet being let down from heaven, and it contains all kinds of creatures. Many of them were definitely considered to be unclean according to the Jewish law of Moses. We're not going to go there, but you can look in Leviticus 11. There's a long list of the clean and unclean animals, ones they could eat, ones they could not eat. Peter knew the list very well. This was ingrained in every Jewish mind. The kosher food laws were central to being a Jew. This was very, very important. And Peter, as with any other practicing Jew, would have prided themselves in the fact that they kept those kosher food laws. 
And so, in this vision, even though it's God himself commanding Peter, I want you to notice this, verse 13, a voice told him, he knows it's the Lord, a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, we're specifically told some of these animals are reptiles. They were forbidden to eat reptiles. Peter knew that. And yet, the voice is telling him, kill even the reptiles and eat them for lunch. Now, this was not one of those crazy pizza dreams that you have when you're really hungry. This is a vision from God. And the next line is classic. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. Surely not, comma, Lord. He knew who was speaking. He knew it was the Lord, kind of like what happened with Saul in his vision. Who are you, comma, Lord? Well, he knew he was the Lord. But this is a little strange here. Peter is telling the Lord, No, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Notice, this would have been a source of great pride for any Jewish person. I've kept the kosher laws. I have never eaten any of the unclean beasts listed in Leviticus 11. I have been a good Jew. Why on earth would God, the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, now be telling Peter to violate his own law and eat reptiles? The voice, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Whoa, that's profound. We're going to have to come back to that, because that is very, very central to our whole story. And this is different from get up, kill, and eat. Now God is giving Peter some more understanding. You may think these animals are impure, you may have thought for centuries they were unclean, but something has shifted. A major change, cosmic change, has just taken place. God is now making the impure clean. God is now calling the impure clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now, Peter's initial response is, No way, Lord. I can't do this. I've never done this. I've never eaten any of these unclean animals. Observance of the kosher laws, the Mosaic laws of clean and unclean, was obviously very deeply ingrained in Peter's mind as it would have been in any practicing Jew. Surely not, Lord. Well, this is an oxymoron. I want you to notice this just doesn't fit. Surely not, Lord. Well, if he's Lord, we don't say no to the Lord. We always say yes to the Lord. And whoever says, surely not, shouldn't be adding the word Lord. And whoever truly says, Lord, shouldn't be saying, surely not. And yet, we do it all the time. Oh, we'll stand up on Sunday in church and sing, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, He's my Lord. And then the Lord will whisper something to us ten minutes later, and we'll say, no, I'm not going to do that. Not so, Lord. You see the problem. If He's Lord, then He 
not only commands, demands, he deserves total, absolute, unquestioning surrender and obedience. And yet, Peter is confused here. Not so, Lord. Surely not, Lord. Now, I've pointed this out throughout the book of Acts, starting way back in chapter 2 with the founding of the church in Jerusalem, which in the beginning was a strictly Jewish church. Old religious traditions die hard. Human nature is very slow in letting go of old traditions. Now this was more than a tradition. This was Mosaic law. This was Jewish law. You are not supposed to eat reptiles and pork and all these other things listed there in Leviticus 11. And now all of a sudden, Peter's having this vision and God is telling him, eat all this stuff. Then, after Peter says no, the Lord comes back a second and third time with these words. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, just pause and take a deep breath. Because in Leviticus 11, it was God calling pigs unclean. God was calling crabs and shrimp and non-fin fish from the sea unclean. God was calling reptiles unclean. And now he's telling Peter, don't call it impure if God has made it clean. This is really profound, and this is a very, very important concept that we're going to spend a few minutes on here because it's so important. The the voice that Peter hears, do not call these things impure, do not call anything, and by extension we're going to see very clearly, this isn't just about food, this isn't just about pigs and and reptiles, and shrimp. This is about people. And here again, old religious traditions die hard. The Jews had for centuries believed, and rightfully so, that they were the clean people, and all of the uncircumcised Gentiles were the unclean. They were the impure. We are the people of God. They are the unclean Gentiles. But, let's talk first about the foods. The literal interpretation here. Was God actually telling Peter the kosher food laws are about to change? Well, Peter would have known this, because he would have heard Jesus teaching on this when he was here on earth with his disciples. Jesus had already laid the groundwork for the eventual removal of these kosher food laws, what's clean and what's unclean. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7, the words of Jesus verses 14 to 23. Mark 7, 14 to 23. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Now pause. Jesus was a practicing Jew. Any Jew knew the kosher food laws. They knew very clearly from Leviticus 11, there are certain foods that are 
unclean, and if you eat them, they'll make you unclean. So, what Jesus is teaching here is radical. It's pointing forward to the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of a whole new covenant. Let's read this again, carefully. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. The Old Covenant concentrated on externals. The New Covenant would be concentrating on internals, what comes out of the heart, the motives, the thoughts, the inner desires. And therefore, verse 16, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples, most assuredly Peter was present, he would have heard this, entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Let me read that again. It's in bold type in your notes. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So this was not a brand new concept that Peter was hearing up on the roof. He had already heard this from the mouth of his master. Time is coming when all foods will be clean. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Again, because the emphasis in the New Covenant is going to be to remove the heart of stone, to give man a heart of flesh, and to move him from within, by the Spirit of God, to begin to carry out the righteous decrees of God. The emphasis in the New Covenant will not be on external food prohibitions or other externals. It will be more on what comes from within, from the heart. And, as I mentioned, it's clear from Peter's vision and what follows in the scriptures we're about to read, this had much deeper significance than just God trying to tell Peter, it's okay to eat bacon now. Yes, there, were, there was coming a change in the food regulations, that's very true, but this is talking about something far more profound than the kosher food laws. Again, it's about the distinction between Jew, thought for centuries to be the clean, and Gentile, thought for centuries to be the unclean. Now, in the New Testament... And I don't want to get too far off on this. It's not really my purpose to deal with kosher food laws and what are we allowed to eat now. But this next passage should be enough to confirm what we've already read. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 5, 
Here's what Paul writes to Timothy concerning foods, what you can eat, and what you can't eat now as a believer. They, and in context, Paul is referring to false teachers, those who were teaching false doctrines, they forbid people to marry. That's obviously not biblical. And they order them to abstain from certain foods. That's obviously not biblical. So, in the previous verses, when he refers to these false teachers, he actually says they were teaching doctrines of demons, or doctrines that were being taught by demons. That's a strong word. Well, what were these doctrines of demons? A, forbidding people to marry, obviously in some ploy that you'll be more spiritual, closer to God. Now, there is a place for that. There are those that choose to abstain from marriage for spiritual purposes. That's fine and dandy. But not to forbid people. These false teachers were forbidding people from marriage and ordering them. Notice that word. Ordering them to abstain from certain foods, just as would have been done in the Old Covenant through the Law of Moses. Thou shalt not eat pork. Thou shalt not eat seafood unless they're finned fish. Thou shalt not eat reptiles. Now, I don't think too many of us are that crazy about eating reptiles, but if you are, um, be encouraged tonight. You're no longer under bondage. We're not going to order you not to eat alligator or snake. Back to the scriptures, though. The false teachers were ordering people to abstain from certain foods. Paul doesn't even elaborate what foods they were, because it doesn't matter. God had now declared all foods clean. And so, false teachers would have been ordering them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything... In bold, everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Again, I don't want to get too deeply into this right now. You can refer to Galatians, Colossians, many other parts of the New Testament where Paul warned the Christians in the early church, don't allow anybody to bring you back under this bondage of taste not, eat not, touch not, this is forbidden, that's unclean. All that has passed away now with the change from the old covenant to the new covenant. However, And this is what I want to really get into now. The real significance of Peter's vision was not to announce God has changed the food laws. The real significance of the vision was God is about to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. And literally, as Peter is sitting there on the roof pondering this vision, trying to figure out what it means, there's a knock at the gate. Gentiles have literally come to the house where he's staying. They have been sent by Cornelius, who has been visited by an angel, because God is now saying it's time to fulfill Genesis 12.3. It's time for the nations, the Gentiles, to receive blessing through Abraham. So, 
of all people, God has singled out the players. Cornelius and his household are the first Gentiles to receive that blessing from Genesis 12.3. Wow, what a distinction. And God has chosen Peter, the first Jewish apostle, to officially deliver the gospel to the Gentiles, and yes, be the fulfillment of Genesis 12.3. As a Jew, Peter had always prided himself on keeping those kosher laws, and he had always looked down his nose on the Gentiles as unclean, as aliens, as strangers, as godless. And he had every reason to do that, because that was written clearly in the Old Covenant. There were the chosen ones, the Jews, and then there were the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles. They were separated from God. You can read about it in Ephesians 2. The Gentiles, prior to this moment in time, they were cut off from God. They were unclean. They were uncircumcised. They're called aliens, strangers, without God, far away from God. That was their condition. But God is now announcing, it is time. It is time for the Gentiles to be included in the blessing of salvation. So, the unclean animals that Peter saw in his vision represent the Gentiles who have now been declared clean by God because they're going to hear the good news of the gospel and they're going to receive the same Holy Spirit that Peter, James, and John and all the others received in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. No more distinction. Ephesians 2, I'm not going to read now, you should read those verses from 11 to 19 in Ephesians 2. Paul goes into great length there describing how God, not Peter, not man, God would break down the middle wall of partition or separation between Jew and Gentile. All of the religious distinctions are being dissolved now. Believers in Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are all going to be on equal ground. They're all going to be joined together in one body called the body of Christ. Now, back to Peter and his vision. He's sitting up on the roof, amazed at this vision. He's he's still processing this because this cuts against centuries of teaching, tradition that had been ingrained in the Jewish people. As Peter is there on the roof pondering, it says, while he was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the contingent sent by Cornelius arrives, and I'm quoting, right then. When Peter later explains the whole experience, those are his very words, right then, indicating the perfect timing of God. Right then, as he's sitting on the roof, thinking about the vision, these three men arrive, and the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter. Go down and meet them. I'm in this. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what the Holy Spirit says. God is in control of this whole thing. He sends an angel to Cornelius, he gives a vision to Peter, and then the Holy Spirit literally speaks to Peter, go down and meet with these men. This is very important. Peter, when he goes down from the roof and meets the three men that have been sent 
from Cornelius' house, he learns how an angel of God has appeared to Cornelius and has directed him to send these men for Peter, specifically looking for a message through which he and his household can be saved. Now, I'm jumping back and forth between Acts 10 and Acts 11 to get the full picture. In Acts 11, Peter, not Luke, Peter retells the story. And one of the details that we find in Acts 11, verse 14, is the purpose for which these men have been sent. Remember, when Peter went down to them, and he tells them, I'm the guy you're looking for, why have you come? Well, in Luke's account, they simply say, our boss, Cornelius, he's a God-fearing man, respected by all the Jewish people. Notice again, um, I think you can tie this directly to Genesis 12.3. He had been a blessing to the Jewish people, so God's going to now bless him. And all they tell Peter is an angel told him to have you come to his house so he could hear what you have to say. Now that's kind of general, but in Acts 11.14, Peter goes into a little greater depth. They have come wishing for Peter to come and deliver, and I'm quoting from Acts 11.14, a message through which he and his household would be saved. This further confirms what I mentioned earlier. Cornelius, as righteous and honorable a man as he was, he's not saved yet. He needs to hear this message from Peter so that he and his household can be saved. Now, the next thing that happens is very radical. Acts 10 and verse 23. After Peter hears all this, it says, Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you and me, but it was a huge deal then. Peter is a Jew. These are Gentiles. Jews did not invite Gentiles into their house to be their guests. It was forbidden. They just didn't mingle. Taking Gentiles into his house was contrary to the accepted practice of the Jews. Again, I'm jumping around a little bit, but later on, Peter would speak these very words to their faces. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. So, Peter seems to already be breaking some of the rules. I think he's starting to get the revelation through the Holy Spirit of the meaning of his vision. What you used to think was unclean or impure, don't call it that anymore, Peter. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. <clears throat> By inviting these three Gentiles into the house, now remember, it's not Peter's own house, it's Simon the Tanner's house, but obviously he did it with his consent. Taking these Gentiles into the house was a huge step. Providing lodging for them, bringing them into the house, obviously feeding them, 
taking them in as guests. The word is very clear. He invited them into the house to be his guest. So he's already beginning to take a step toward accepting the Gentiles. Now, I'm going to read the next portion, and we're going to have to close for there without any further comment. But from verse 23, let's read down to oh, verse 33. The next day, Peter started out with them. That's with these three Gentiles that have been sent by Cornelius. The next day, they're not wasting any time, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. This was a big deal. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So, the stage is set. The folks have all been gathered, many people, relatives, close friends, the whole house of Cornelius is there anxiously awaiting Peter's arrival, and they're all ears. They're ready to hear whatever Peter has to tell them. And we'll have to save it for next time, but this is obviously a divine appointment. God has set this whole thing up, and on his calendar, this is a very important date. It was prophesied way back in Genesis 12, repeatedly prophesied by Isaiah and other prophets. Now it's literally about to happen. Light is coming to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are about to hear the good news <clears throat> of the gospel from the mouth of Peter. <clears throat> we'll stop there till next time, and we'll pick it up right here. Let's close in prayer. Father God, in the name of Jesus, you are so awesome. You are sovereign. You have all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. You can move heaven and earth to accomplish your program, your purposes. And Lord, even though this had been predicted and prophesied centuries earlier, the time had come for you to open the door of faith for the Gentiles, to break down the middle wall of partition that had been there for centuries between Jew and Gentile. You, O oh God, were now 
breaking it down, calling the impure, the unclean, clean through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, how amazing are your ways. And I pray, O God, that you would enlarge our vision, our revelation, our understanding of these things as we study them and dig more deeply. Paul told the Ephesians it was a mystery. A mystery can only truly be understood by the Holy Spirit. Help us to grasp the the power, the depth of what we're reading about here, that you, O God, were opening up the way for Gentiles to join with the Jewish people in this great salvation that came through the sacrifice, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we praise you and we thank you that most of us listening to this Bible study were not Jewish, were Gentiles. We thank you, O God, that you opened the door of faith, the door of salvation to us. Let us not take it for granted. Help us to understand this was a great act of your grace, your kindness, and your mercy. Father, I thank you for each and every one that has joined with us tonight. Bless us, make us a blessing, and let us, O God, be a blessing.